like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the future of health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Well, it's great to great to be with everyone today, and I think I'm really, uh, you know, really honored to have as my guest Dr. Walter Erba, who heads up clinical research for us. But that doesn't do justice to all of his talents. He ran and developed the Cancer Center in Portland. Uh, he uh, trained at the NCI with a couple of colleagues that I know, and he is one of those unique. Um, uh, clinicians who uh, can work in the lab and can work at the bedside and do both of those incredibly well, and has spent a lot of his time particularly looking at immunotherapy in cancer. Well, Walter, it's great to, great to have you here today. Thank you. Good. So what we want to do today in 25 minutes or less is unravel all of the noise that uh, our audience is hearing about the coronavirus, vaccines, antibodies, and how all that works. And I can't think of anyone better to kind of bring us through this than uh, yourself. But maybe to start out a little bit about just the uh, COVID-19 and how does COVID-19 attack our cells and what's the process there, Dr. Erba? Well, I, I have a couple slides, and uh, sure. the first slide is a picture I think that most of the audience may have seen on CNN already. <laughs> you, you can see the aura around the virus, and these are the S proteins or the spike proteins, and they're, they're what lead to the virus's name as looking like it has a corona like the sun. So those are the, the coronavirus. It comes from a, a family of, of viruses. Uh, there are about seven different types, and four of them infect us all the time as cold viruses. Three of them have been very serious uh, issues for us, starting way back in 1993 with the first SARS virus uh, that it, uh, infected large numbers of patients across the world, not nearly as many as this virus has. And then there was that Middle Eastern respiratory virus that uh, affected a significant number of people. Uh, those viruses didn't seem to have the same propensity to be transmitted from human to human. So we didn't see as big a problem as we are seeing now. And so here, here this is a picture of virus doesn't look too, too scary, um, but it, in the next slide, you can see a couple of, of uh, a, a depiction of the, that protein on the surface of the cell. It's called the spike protein. And the, the reason this uh, virus causes so much trouble is because of that protein, the spike protein, you see the S1 and the S2, and it can bind to something called ACE2, which is part of our normal body, helps regulate uh, blood pressure uh, in, in our 
um, in our body, and we, many of us take drugs that inhibit this to keep our blood pressure down. But this is the target. We know this is the target. This ACE target is present in our nasal pharynx. It's present in our lungs. It's present on blood vessels. And the way that this happens is we, we inhale virus via, via droplets or we pick it up from touching things. It gets into our uh, nasal passages or eye and then finds its way to these cells. And in the next slide, it, it shows the kind of problems uh, or, or, or how it replicates. So it's a little complicated, but you can see in the top left, the virus uh, coming into contact with the cell. It meets that uh, little ACE2 receptor and there's another protein there, TMPRSS2, which is required to split the spike protein, but that allows the cell to enter, fuses with the membrane, gets into the cell, it releases its genetic material called RNA, and then that RNA is uh, read and uses our normal cell machinery to make proteins. These proteins are, are then used by the virus to make multiple copies of its own genetic material. And then that genetic material codes for more proteins to make the virus. And then the virus takes its genetic material, its proteins, forms a new package, and then leaves the cell ready to infect another cell. And uh, that's sort of how we, we get the virus and, and its life cycle in various cells in our body and the ones deepest in our lungs aligning our GI tract and our blood vessels are the most susceptible to infection by the virus. So, so Walter, a couple, couple of questions that I think, you know, that's a beautiful way of kind of describing basically how this virus takes over our own cellular mechanisms and kind of turns them on, on ourselves. Why is it that some people seem more susceptible to this virus than others? What's, a, what, what's the scientific, what are some of the answers to that? Yeah, I, I, I wish there were answers to it. Um, there, there are speculations, and right. uh, certainly we, we, we've seen high-risk groups, and those high-risk groups tend to be the elderly. They tend to be people who are immunosuppressed because of some illness they may have, such as cancer or people taking immunosuppressive drugs for treatment of autoimmune diseases. And this weakens their immune system, as does aging weaken our immune system and make us more susceptible. Certainly sometimes the living conditions under uh, where, where people are, their socioeconomic uh, class seems like many illnesses to affect who gets in, infected may have to do with the density in, in, in which we uh, live together, our access to healthcare uh, issues like that. Is there a correlation between the amount of virus we inhale and how sick we get? Uh, you know, I, 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 the data would suggest that, that there is, although I think uh, it's still possible to get infected with a very small number of virions. But I think the general census is the bigger the viral load you are met with initially, the more likely that virus is to find uh, one of those ACE2 receptors to bind to and uh, uh, grow and proliferate to a large enough size that it overwhelms the immune system and causes illness. Right. So, so there's a, a, you know, so now you describe the attack pattern and people in labs all around the country. And I know you've got a number of clinical trials that uh, 
you're doing at Providence St. Joseph across uh, using different agents, maybe walking through with the audience, you know, what are some of the ways that we can counterattack the, the, the virus and maybe explaining how, how the different things that a lot of people are hearing about on TV fit into this discussion. Right. I guess I think the most important thing and that people have heard so much about and, and never thought they'd know about was PPE. Because, of course, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really know what supply chain was until we, we got into this PPE. And then I saw how it sort of overtook all of our lives. And I know it overtook yours in trying to make sure that all of our healthcare givers had personal protective equipment. So it starts with prevention, right? So that, that, that's the... Yeah. That's the that's the that's the core of this, and finding patients early, and if you can uh, quarantine them, isolate them, and then test their contacts. So prevention is always uh, uh, the the best strategy. But once the virus takes hold, uh, there there is no standard therapy. Uh, the current standard is to support them through their illness, and people with mild symptoms go go home and uh, can take aspirin and Tylenol and. Uh, uh, waited out and most of them get better, but some of them are severely ill, require hospitalization, and then we're challenged with what, what do we do to uh, uh, interfere with the virus replication and all the things that we know are going to happen. And that same slide I just had up earlier has key points in the virus life cycle that we know how to inhibit. And if we could take a look at that again, there, there are multiple points at which the virus could be susceptible, and you can see them here. There are little boxes uh, with captions that describe potential strategies like inter interfering uh, with the viral cell entry. Uh, there, er, er, early on, there is a drug we've all been familiar with, and that is the hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine family, the anti-malarial drugs, which do have some potential in the test tube to inhibit viral entry and interfere with its uh, gaining access to the cell and reproducing itself. It also has some anti-inflammatory uh, effects and we have been engaged, we and many, many others have been engaged with clinical trials trying to look at how hydroxychloroquine can be used at a any stage of the illness to try and improve the patient's uh, outcome. They, the most, uh, most of our work has been done in the area, if you look for where down the polypeptides uh, go to non-structural proteins, and then they go to make this thing called an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is a fancy way of saying how they, how they reproduce and copy their genetic material. And you'll see in there a number of antiviral drugs. Some of them have been used against flu. Some of them have been used against HIV with various levels of success, and those drugs so far have not found, been found to be very effective in uh, coronavirus infection. But there's one drug in there, remdesivir, which uh, is made by Gilead and has uh, recently received uh, uh, a, an ex a expedited approval, uh, um, emergency approval by uh, the FDA, uh, because it has been shown to um, decre decrease the time to recovery and have some modest effects on overall survival of patients. So that's a that's the first drug that's been shown to have some 
activity against uh, this virus uh, in, in human beings. And outside this cell, you can see a lot of pictures of, that's the immune system. And, and a lot of what we know about why, why the virus uh, can kill and cause illness, a lot of it has to do with the unbridled immune response that occurs within the depths of the lung and the dying cells, dead virus and immunological components can cloud, crowd out uh, the air sacs where air is transferred from the lungs to the bloodstream. And that, that causes a lot of the problems that we see. Lots of patients in the intensive care unit, they need to be on ventilators. Uh, I bet a lot of people didn't know what ventilators were, and now it's on CNN and other news channels every night. And uh, but a lot so of that is, is some of the strategy here. You know, so we've got some initial uh, positives from remdesivir. Just kind of the you know the way you know HIV was kind of attacked. Uh, does it does it make sense to kind of look at? a couple of agents simultaneously in trying to uh, uh, take this virus off its game? Uh, absolutely, it, it does. The, uh, the, the issue and problems with that have been not, not even having one drug that we knew yeah. worked and not completely understanding what the safety issues would be. But we've learned a lot about what the safety issues are with remdesivir. It's a, it's a, it's a safe drug to administer. Uh, the, we have a number of drugs that we've been testing that are effective at interfering with some of these uh, immune sequelae that cause damage to the lungs. And so it it's, makes a lot of sense to try and combine those two drugs, get at the antiviral effects, and then also try and ameliorate some of the immunologic damage. And, and there may be other antiviral drugs that don't show much activity by themselves, but if you can combine them, they may have superior activity. And those, uh, those uh, protocols are, are on the drawing board. But the other thing we learned through this is, boy, this happened fast. And, wow. And to get these trials open and to have patient that, I mean, IRBs that can take two or three months, we're approving protocols in two or three days. Uh, but but um, and, and it still takes time to do the trials, sort through the data, and and now we're being asked to participate in clinical trials. And in some parts of our system, thankfully, the virus seems to have slowed down, and the numbers of patients in the hospitals are declining. And we may not be able to test a combination protocol because right. the patients aren't here to test it on. Great. Uh, the other the other thing, a couple of other things that have come up terms of treatment is the issue around virus mutation. And, you know, we're hearing just a lot of noise about that. What's, uh, what's your take on all of that? Well, I, right now it's a theoretical concern. Um, our, this is an RNA virus and RNA viruses tend to have a very uh, high mutation rate. They don't uh, reproduce uh, or copy their genetic material very accurately. However, the coronavirus is one of those few viruses that actually does have a repair mechanism. So it doesn't mutate as much as some of the other RNA viruses uh, do. And there have been a lot of work, including some at Providence, where we've actually been sequencing the virus that comes out of patients and looking at what their DNA is. And you, it, it's interesting because you can 
you can learn the history of the virus, where it came from, right? For example, some parts of the country, the virus came from China, other parts of our country, the virus came from Europe, uh, all originated seemingly in China. And, um, but the viruses so far don't seem to be um, um, be, uh, mutating to become more pathogenic or, right. or more serious. It's, it's a concern. Uh, and as we think about vaccines and other approaches to prevent this disease, we're, we're going to be looking to try and target things that don't mutate uh, and, and may stay in the population so that they may be more broadly effective. Then the other, the other part that you alluded to, and maybe in a little you know, more detail, is this whole issue of the antibody response. So the, the host's um, ability to try to fend this off, which happens in all of us, to a, a better degree or a lesser degree, maybe just maybe talking the audience through when they hear about uh, that antibody response or immunity or how, how that happens in their own bodies. Uh, talk us through that. Sure. Well, and when we make an immune response, there are usually two components, right? One is a cellular component or our T cells make responses. And that's something that's worthy of further study, not ready for quite prime time yet. But the other component of an immune response is antibodies. And we make antibodies to viruses, bacteria, and antibodies have been a particular interest to us in this infection. Number one, because they could be therapeutic, meaning antibodies that a COVID survivor have, has produced uh, may be harvested by a procedure called pharesis and collected and then administered back to the patient where we hope it would have therapeutic effects. And there have been small numbers of anecdotes from China and other places where this seems to be effective. And there's a protocol of which we're a part run by out of the Mayo Clinic where I, I think up to 50 or 60 patients in the Providence Health System have had a convalescent serum uh, provided to them. And we've been working with others and other companies who rather than rely on the presence of antibodies in one individual, taking them out and giving them to another, you can make monoclonal antibodies, right? We right. People see commercials for monoclonal antibodies for Humira and other things on TV all the time. There is the, there, there are people who have made and have and are now producing monoclonal antibodies to certain parts of the coronavirus. And we will be getting, uh, be beginning a trial of, of this in the virus, uh, against uh, the virus uh, sometime in the next month or so. And then of course, there's that whole question of, okay, people who either we didn't know had COVID-19 and coronavirus infection or uh, who got ill and, uh, and got better, uh, we, we expect them to make antibodies. And what, right. we hope, what we hope that antibody means is that they're now immune and, and that will uh, help our population start to develop resistance to this virus if it comes around a second time. And so there's been a lot of discussion about antibodies uh, again in, in the news. And uh, we've been plagued by large numbers of tests that don't work very well. Looks like we now have a couple of tests that have the right characteristics that will be very useful. They're being tested on different populations. Uh, we, we, we've been testing healthcare workers. Other people have been testing uh, patient uh, survivors. Others have been testing the whole town and uh, trying to look and, and getting different 
numbers for how many people have made antibodies. And that, and then the question is, what do you use them for? Right. Some people are talking about uh, licensing. You, you have antibodies that gives you a license to do certain things that if I don't have antibodies, I, I, I can't do. Uh, uh, it, it, it seems like so far, Walter, at least it's a tool more on a population basis than on an individual basis, at least for now. Um, because I don't think we quite understand, you know, and there, you know, for the audience, there are two types of antibodies, IgM and IgG. IgG is the one that gives you supposedly longer standing immunity. Um, it's not quite sure how long that immunity might last or how intense it is. Um, but it does give some indication of how much um, virus there has been in a community and what potentially some of the immunity is in a large group. And then individual immunity is an interesting question. Correct. I mean, we need, we need to know we have an accurate test and then we need to know what the presence of that antibody means. And, and we, we don't know that. We, don't, we assume if we extrapolate from what we know from other viruses that the presence of, of uh, a high level of antibodies will, will make you immune and protect you from a second infection. The, the last, last segment is uh, we've got uh, probably 20, 30 plus folks in different labs that are working on vaccine development. And uh, I think a lot of the audience would say, well, why would it be that many? And why do they have so many approaches? Maybe just the primer on why, you know, what, what different labs are looking at with vaccines. Sure. And, and, and I, uh, Nature published a, a little a vignette the other day, and there are over 110 different vaccines being looked at. 75% the private sector, 25% in academia. And uh, the, the, the questions that face the, the vaccine maker are, well, what part of the virus do we want an immune response against? Everybody thinks it's that spike protein that, that does make sense. It's sitting there on the outside. And if you, if you look at this next, if you look at this last slide, you can see what's called a neutralizing antibody. We didn't talk about that in the last segment, but there are different kinds of antibodies. Uh, there are antibodies that react to the virus, but don't interfere with its ability to enter a cell. Those wouldn't be nearly as useful as a neutralizing antibody, which binds this receptor binding domain, the RBD, which is what connects it to the uh, angiotensin converting enzyme to uh, receptor. And those kind of antibodies can be very protective. So there's a lot of focus on, on that specific protein. And, and there are a lot of ways to make an immune response against that protein. And they include isolating the protein, the purified spike and immunizing people like you do with a tetanus shot. And you can take that slide off if you will. And the other the other ways to do it are to use uh, the the nucleotides from uh, that encode for this. And you then inject the host, a mouse, uh, a non-human primate, or a human with the DNA or the RNA sequence. And that's yeah. what any of the companies are using. And then you let the host cells make the spike protein. And when the spike protein is made, it looks foreign to the individual, and an immune response is made. So, uh, and there are people making uh, antibodies to different parts of the spike protein, right? Because if you make it to one part and the virus mutates, it may not work. And that concept leads others to say, well, you can't just focus on 
one part of the virus, you need to look at multiple parts of the virus. So some people do multiple components and others say, well, you know, I think you should use the whole virus. So yep. some, some of the studies are, are using uh, inactivated whole virus to, uh, to immunize, hoping that a, a broad, uh, strong immune response to multiple components will prevent any escape from the immune system. And this is this is not unlike um, you know the polio epidemic, right? In terms of where Salk and Sabin were going with you know the kind of the first large scale immunization and you know using inactivated virus as uh, as the potentiator. So that kind of explains why there are so many, and there's kind of a race to to get this done. I'll put you on the spot. Um, what do you think? Uh, when do you think we'd have something that uh, could approach uh, uh, a possibility for the for, for the population. Well, uh, I, I I watch the news too and see how some of the <laughs> estimates, and I'm glad I'm not Tony Fauci having to uh, agree that uh, by the first part of 2021. I mean, there are many steps to go through. Right, first there's you have to do the 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 safety testing, and when you get that data, then you go through. and And Tony Fauci's study is one of the the first studies going through using uh, an RNA and virus-like particles, and they're going to have the first. They're going to have very early data, but you have the safety data, and then you're going to go into normal patients. Normal, not even they're not patients, right? They're the well, and you're going to have to immunize and find the right dose, and and uh, then you're going to have to wait for the next epidemic, right, or the the next wave of virus to see if it actually works. So I think I think it is true that in January we will have things that look promising, that we know are safe, that can induce an immune response. What we won't know is, do they work? Yeah, it'll probably be, my prediction be, it'll be the largest uh, scale testing of anything ever in the history of research in the world. I, I have this vision that there'll be uh, thousands of us on different vaccines and, you know, we're going to be looking in order to kind of accelerate the process, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty impressive. I agree. Yeah. Well, Walter, thank you so much for, for, for all this. And I think you've uh, really uh, helped uh, get some of the noise out of the system and, uh, you know, explain this. And you have dedicated your life to research. And uh, there are opportunities for our folks out there at provhealth.org to, uh, if they feel inclined to put money towards research, we'd be glad to uh, have that. And, you know, we've just got a research unit that we're very proud of. And the beauty is that it's over seven states, a uh, whole bunch of researchers in every corner. And uh, Dr. Erber is in, uh, in the center of all that trying to, trying to organize it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you.